0: Buddy, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, and Frankie or one of the leaders will hand them out. If you already have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter six. Matthew chapter six. That is Matthew is the first first uh, book of the New Testament, and we're gonna be in the sixth chapter. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, if you uh, first time opening it, the big numbers are the chapters, and the little numbers are the verses. Okay. So open up to Matthew chapter 6. When you're there, you can say, I'm there. I'm there. All right, one person. <laughs> All right, thank you, guys. <clears throat> All right, so Matthew 6, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. Frankie, can you please give a Bible? Thank you. Oh, need no paper? Yep. All right, if you need no paper, that's also coming around as well. All right, so let's read it together. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. This is Jesus speaking, and he says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Verse 3, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, O God. Lord, it is a privilege every time that we gather. Lord, I pray now that you would uh, help us, O God, to focus, to hear, Lord, that your spirit might apply your word to our hearts, that we might grow in the knowledge and love of you. We thank you and we give you all glory now and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It was William Shakespeare who penned the famous words, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. But that naturally raises the question, right? If it is true that all of us are indeed acting, on a stage that is the world, who are we acting for? Whose applause and recognition are we looking to get for ourselves? Who makes up the audience of all of the actions that we perform? There's an author, Oz Guinness, and he points out, most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience audience we have. The question is not whether we have an audience, but which audience we have. And this is a sort of question that Jesus is raising here as we enter into this new section in the Sermon, of Mount, uh, Sermon on the Mount here in chapter 6. And I think the question can be summarized like this. Are you practicing your righteous acts for the audience of self or God? Are you practicing your righteous acts for the audience of self or for God? Or put it another way, is your Christianity an effort to gain the applause of men or to gain the applause of God? Whose recognition are you looking to gain? And this is exactly Jesus' emphasis here in Matthew chapter 6, and he's starting this new section, section where he is shifting his focus away from the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's looking now at the practice of the scribes, and the Pharisees. And what he looks at is the three most well-known aspects of Jewish religious life. And those three things, as we're going to see this evening, we're going to look at two of them specifically, but those three things are almsgiving, which simply means to give to the needs of the poor, charity. Secondly, prayer. And third, fasting, self-denial. And as I mentioned, tonight we're going to look at those first two. Charitable deeds, as the New King James Version puts it, almsgiving, and prayer. And so Jesus, though, is not just talking about the religious practice of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's addressing his disciples. And so he's actually speaking into the religious lives of his disciples. And so what this chapter does is it demands that you and I, as we read it, allow it to stand as a mirror before our hearts. And allow us to examine ourselves as we seek to answer these questions again, Are we practicing our righteous acts for the audience of self or the audience of God? Is your Christianity an effort to gain the applause of men or to gain the applause of God? And for all of us, any of us who've ever spent any second doing self-examination, you know that it can be a very painful process. Because oftentimes when you're honest with yourself, it leads to answers that you don't necessarily like to hear. But oftentimes it's in that, in that time of self-examination. Oftentimes it's in those instances where we are honest with ourselves, that we open ourselves up to actually experience grace and to experience healing. And so my hope is that you will allow Matthew chapter 6 to be like an x-ray of sorts. To allow it to, to open up and show you the fractures in your faithful obedience to God that you might be healed by the great physician in his grace. And so I pray that this will serve as that x-ray this evening. And in order to answer those two questions that I pose to you, Jesus, a good uh, speaker himself, he gives us the perfect outline. And so I'm not going to make one up. I'm going to follow his. And what Jesus does is he starts off in verse 1 by providing us with a principle. He gives us this general principle that's supposed to be the foundation for the way the disciples are supposed to live. And then he moves on to giving us these illustrations, three illustrations, as we've already mentioned. And also he focuses at the end of each of these on the rewards that are involved. So first we're going to look at the principle. We're going to look at two righteous acts, almsgiving and prayer. And finally... We're going to look at the rewards that are involved. And so notice with me first this general principle that Jesus gives, and it's right here in verse 1. He says this, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Unfortunately, in the New King James Version, it says charitable deeds, but the idea is, is better as the ESV renders it. It says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father, who is in heaven." And the reason why the word righteousness is more appropriate here is because Jesus is starting by making a broad point. He's beginning by pointing out that righteous living, your piety, the way that you carry yourself and conduct yourself, he's making this broad principle, and then he's going to narrow in to focus on three outworkings of righteous life. And so here he's saying, Beware of practicing your righteousness broadly. And then he's going to focus in and he's going to give us three examples of the ways in which we can tend to practice righteousness in a faulty manner. And so this is the principle. Verse one is the principle Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But you'll notice, if you th- start to think about this principle, there's a bunch of uh, nuances. To it that are included and wrapped up inside of it. And the first one is that Jesus is not changing the what, he's transforming the why. You may say, what does that mean, right? What does it mean that Jesus is not changing the what, but he's transforming the why? And it means this. It means that Jesus is not calling his disciples to practice an entirely different kind of piety than the Jewish leaders. Rather, he's calling them to practice the same piety with a different end in mind. That is, Jesus is focused on motivation. The why question is the question of motivation. It's the question of why do you do what you do? And that is what Jesus is primarily concerned with here, as we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount, right? We've seen how Jesus has the ability to go beyond the surface, to go beyond mere acts, and to penetrate into the heart, and to ask those questions. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And so he's still saying, Disciples, you must show mercy to the poor, you must pray, you must fast, but you must practice these things with an eye to the favor of God and not with an eye to the favor of men. And this is what we have seen, that Jesus is not merely interested in performance. He's more concerned with motivation. He's not interested merely for you to perform and act out your piety. He wants to get to the heart of motivation of why you do what you do. Why are you acting the way you are acting? And so here we have the same principle that Jesus gave when he spoke to the prophet Samuel when he went to the house of Jesse and he said, man looks at the outside, but God looks at the heart. And if the disciples are going to be able to fulfill what Jesus himself said in Matthew 5.20, he said, Unless you, ha- He said that they must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. These people did a lot of righteous things. And Jesus is saying, your righteousness must exceed their righteousness. Why? How? In, this, in the sense that the motivation, the new attitude that has to be involved. And it's an attitude that isn't just showy performance, right? But it's humble service to God. It's a heart that is humbly submitted to God in view of heavenly reward and not the reward of men. But you may be thinking, wait a second, didn't Jesus tell us to practice our righteousness before men? Right? If you go back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, he seems to say it very clearly. He says this, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. He's telling you to practice your righteousness before men. So it seems, right? But as you begin to look at this difference between 5.16 and 6.1, you'll actually see that there really is no contradiction, that the conflict is merely on the surface. And there's great differences in both two ways. In the first sense, there's a difference in motivation, right? So in Matthew 5.16, Jesus is referencing the truth that the faith of the disciples should rightly be public. It should be a public faith. As Christians, there's a danger— of us drawing a divide between our private lives, meaning what I do on Sunday at church, what I do when I'm home, what I do when I'm not at school, and your public life, what I do at work, what I do at school, etc., etc. But God is saying, no, 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 no. Jesus, rather, is saying, no. There is no divide. All of your life is to be a shining light, giving glory to me and doing good to others. But a public faith is very different than a pretentious faith. There's a big difference between living out your faith publicly and living out your faith in a pretentious, performy, showy manner. And in other words, it's one thing if naturally and consistently you're living a life that gives glory to God, but if you're intentionally trying to do good things in order that other people would recognize the good that you're doing, then your motivation is completely skewed. So on the one hand, there's a difference in motivation, but there's also a different in the re- difference in the results. You'll notice, right, 5.16, what does it say? It says that we are to practice good deeds so that God will be glorified. Right? So that God will be glorified. But here in, six, in, in chapter 6, verse 1, he's condemning good deeds that people practice so that people will glorify the person doing the good deeds. What does he say? He says, Beware, uh, take heed that you do not do your tribal deeds before men to be seen by them. Right? And so here we have this difference in motivation to be seen by God, not by men, and the difference in results, it's God glorification versus self-glorification. And so what Jesus is calling his disciples to be and to do is to be the type of people who do good deeds in a public fashion to bring glory to God and to do good to others. It's God-centered instead of man-centered. And that makes all the difference in the world. And I think the importance of this nuance reminds us that the point of our spiritual lives, the thing that you and I were made to do, the thing that you and I are called to do, in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, our supreme object in life should be to please God, to please Him only, and to please Him always and in everything. You were made to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, as the the catechism says, right? But notice another principle, another nuance here in the principle, and when you think about it, it's rather convicting. And it's this. Jesus assumes that his disciples are practicing righteousness. Right? So the reason that Jesus asked the question, why, is because he's already assumed the what. I'll show you what I mean. In verse 1, he says this, beware of practicing your righteousness. And then in the beginning of verse 2, he starts his example with the words, thus, when you give to the needy. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, beware if you practice your righteousness. He doesn't say, thus, if you give to the needy. No. Instead, he actually assumes that his disciples are already performing these acts. Jesus is already assuming that his disciples are giving, that they are praying, that they are fasting. And as we've already seen, the almsgiving, the prayer, this was central to the Jewish life. It was assumed. It was not something that people asked about. And so Jesus is asking the question, not should you do them, but how and why are you going to do them? Not should you give, not should you pray, not should you fast and exercise self-denial, but how and why are you going to do these things? And this, the reason why this is so convicting is because it actually pushes our question one step further back, right? So before I mention that the question that we have to ask ourselves is, are you practicing your righteous acts for the audience of self or God? But the first question is, are you practicing righteousness at all? Are we the type of people who can say, I show mercy to others? Are we people who are generous with the provision that God has given us, whether it's in the form of money or the time that you have or things that God has blessed you with? Do we give ourselves to regular patterns of prayer? Do I exercise self-denial in my life? Whether that means in terms of fasting from food or media or electronics or other things that I am prone to indulge in. And Jesus is assuming that the answer is yes to these questions. And then he's going to ask us the the question, are you doing it to glorify yourself or God? And so Jesus' principle here is aimed at helping us to avoid two pitfalls. The first pitfall is misplaced motivation. But the second pitfall is neglected righteousness. For some of us this evening, you may not even be at the level of doing the what. And Jesus is calling us and challenging us to be, as disciples, people who are generous. People who are concerned about the needs of others. People who set aside time to commune with God. People who practice self-denial. And perhaps for some of you, say, yes, I am walking that way. Well, then Jesus' question to you is, how and why are you practicing? What is your motivation? And so... To summarize here this general principle, again, in the words of Jesus himself, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And then we have these nuances that are called to govern our acts. And so let's look, let's begin to look at the acts that Jesus describes, right? First, he starts off with almsgiving. And you may be thinking, what the heck is almsgiving, right? <laughs> we don't usually use that word, right? The New King James renders it as charitable deeds, and this simply means anything that you do to help other people. Anything you do to help other people, whether, like I mentioned, whether that's in the, in the form of giving money, whether that's, you know, it's actually funny, I was thinking about this on Wednesday night, how um, when the ushers take offering for the missions offering, they usually just skip the youth, because they just assume they're not going to give anything, right? But what if we were to, to be like, hey, come back here with that offering back, I want to give to missions, And I understand a lot of us don't work. We may not have expendable income, right? But the point is, it's not about how much. It's just a question of the motivation. Is our heart in a disposition to give, to be charitable, right? And so Jesus is saying here, if your aim is to help other people, that is what Jesus has in view here. And he starts off by showing us what we are not to do. Right? And so he references in verse 2, he says, Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So Jesus gives us this metaphor, right, of sounding the trumpet. And I think the idea is clear, right? You can imagine, you know, somebody walking and metaphorically sounding a trumpet. They're trying to draw attention to themselves. They want people to see, look how generous of a person I am. Look how I give to the needs of others. And Jesus, he calls it for what it is, right? He says, as the hypocrites do. And that word hypocrite, in the original language, it actually has the idea of an actor, right? It has the idea of a person who saw the world as a stage, to go back to our Shakespeare quote. And so these scribes and the Pharisees, they were acting in order to gain the glory and the applause of men. They were play-acting righteousness. It was not genuine, but they were masking it. And so Jesus is calling attention to that, and there's a a great story by by the great pastor Charles Spurgeon that captures the heart of this matter, and it goes like this. He says, once upon a time, there was a king. And this king ruled over everything in a land. And one day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. And he took it to his king and he said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was so touched by this and he he discerned the heart of the gardener. And so as the gardener turned to go, the king said to him, Wait. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed, and he delighted, and he went home rejoicing. But while all this was taking place, there was a nobleman, and he was sitting in the king's court, and he over- overheard all of this, and he, he thought to himself, My, if this is what you can, you can get for a carrot, what if you gave the king something better? And so the next day, the nobleman, He comes trotting before the king, and he's leading this handsome black stallion, and he bows low, and he says, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect. But the king discerned his heart, and he said, Thank you. And he took the horse and simply dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. And so the king looked at him and he said, let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. That gardener was giving me the carrot, you were giving yourself that horse. The point is this. The scribes and the Pharisees were not being charitable towards others and towards God. They were just lining their own pockets. They were giving to themselves. They were not clothing the poor, they were clothing their egos. They were not looking to fill the coffer of the man in need, they were looking to fill the banks of their pride. And so the king likewise would look at them and say, scribes and Pharisees, you did not give to me. You were only giving to yourself. And our Lord, our king, Jesus, he discerns our hearts. He knows why you give. He knows the motivation behind it. And he knows those who are giving with the heart of the nobleman, whose giving was really only an attempt to gain for himself. But Jesus gives us not only the negative, but he also tells us what we are to do. He says in verse 3, But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. It's a strange phrase, right? Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. It's rather impossible, right? But I think we understand and get the point that Jesus is making, and it's simply this. That we are to give generously, not only without the intention of gaining the applause of others, but without the intention of gaining the applause of ourselves, For some of you, for some of us, we may avoid the trap of wanting other people's approval, but then we turn around and we look inside our own heart and we say, golly, am I a good guy? And we've just fallen into the same trap, right? And so this is the whole point that Jesus is making, is that fundamentally when you and I look for the applause of others, what we're really looking for is self-glorification. You'll notice when we asked the question in the beginning, the question was, do you practice your righteous acts For the applause of self or God. Not the applause of men. Because the truth is that all of you, all of us, it's not so much that we want the applause of men, it's that we want to feel good about ourselves. Why do you want people to say, oh, you're a good person? It's so that you can feel good about yourself. And this is what sin is. Sin is self-glorification. It's self-gratification. Is that a word, gratification? I think so, yes. Um, And so this is the sinister nature of sin, how it sneaks in. And so even when we avoid the applause of others, we're still looking to applaud ourselves, to clap ourselves on the back. Instead, what Jesus is doing is he's calling us to have the heart of the gardener, right? That we would do good out of a love-filled worship to God, to our King who has given us all things. This is what we are called to do in our giving, in our charity, in our mercy. But Jesus not only looks at how we respond in our deeds towards other people, but even in the most intimate space, prayer. You know what's so interesting about this example is if you think about charitable deeds, they're not explicitly religious, right? There are a lot of wonderful humanitarian organizations that do good for people, and we are grateful for them and but there you know giving to the needs of the poor is not something that only religious people do maybe they do it more than others but it's not an explicitly religious act but what about prayer secular people don't pray only religious people pray prayer is one of the most holy activities that a person could engage in it is essentially the communion of the soul with god and jesus is saying beware because you could be approaching the throne of grace and not realize that sin is on your back. It's kind of terrifying to think about how sneaky and slippery sin is, that even in the most holy and intimate of acts, that it could sneak right in and corrupt the very act itself. And so Jesus here is putting his finger right on that. And that's why he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, verse 5. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So again, Jesus reintroduces this concept of the hypocrite right? And he talks about first, he says, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues, and this likely meant that there were certain people who were in the synagogue, and they were invited up to the front, and they got to pray before all the people, and everyone thought, man, look at this guy praying for us in front of the church. Wow, what a spiritual man, right? But the other one is even more, (laughs) it's crazy, right? So he says, um, and on the corner, uh, corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. So apparently, um, every, ne- every afternoon, there would be a call for afternoon prayer, and there were certain scribes and Pharisees who would literally time out their steps so that when the afternoon prayer came, they'd be, oh, here I am on a corner, but I must pray. Oh, Lord, this is, this is how, how corrupt they had become in their hearts. And you may look at that and say, Well, this is ridiculous, right? Like, I'm not counting my steps to ensure that when it's time to pray, I'm in the most public place possible. But does it not work itself out in more subtle ways, right? Does it not work itself out that when you pray, all of a sudden you become very much aware of the sentence structure, the alliteration, the metaphors that you are using, your scripture references. You're like, wow. That was a, someone, you're writing that down? We gotta put that in a, a hymnal or something, right? It's easy to think like that. And you become so aware of what you're saying that you're not even praying to God, you're just talking to yourself. Right, there's the illustration that Jesus gives of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, and, and the word, the way it renders in Luke 18, 11, it literally says that the Pharisee prayed about himself. And if you look at the prayer, it's literally a resume. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like this Pharisee. I fast three times, whatever. And he goes on and he gives this resume. And it's almost as if, like, God is just this, like, formal header, you know? It has nothing to do with the prayer at all. Because the Pharisee wasn't praying at all. He was praying about himself. He was talking to himself. And it's easy for us to slip into this same pattern where we're so aware of people around us or even so aware of ourselves that we're not truly sitting in the presence of God. We're not communing with him. We're distracted by these things. And so the question is, what are we to do instead, right? Jesus, again, he tells us. He says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in in the secret place and your father who sees in secret... Will reward you openly. So when Jesus here, he talks about the secret place. This is most likely referring to the storeroom that ancient, uh, that the peoples at this time would have. So there was this storeroom in their house, and this was the only place that you could lock the door. It had no windows, it was completely sealed off from other people. And so Jesus is purposefully picking out the most secluded secret place that he could think of, and he's saying, When you pray, go there. Go to the secret place, the most private place. But this raises the question, right? Does this mean that Jesus didn't want us to pray in public? Is public prayer a bad thing? No, of course not, right? Jesus is not saying that we don't pray in public, but he's using this secret place as a metaphor to remind us that whenever you pray, it should be as if you are in the most quiet, secret place where no one can see, and it's just you and God. To pray in the presence of God, not in the presence of man, not in the presence of your own self, but to pray in the presence of God. To become so unaware of others around you and so unaware of even your own self, but you're only aware of God, that's when grace is offered. That's when grace is experienced, you know? It's like riding a bike. As long as you are focused on the people around you or even focused on how you're doing, you can't do it, right? You need to just get in the groove and ride. And in a very similar but not similar way, with prayer, right, I, I'm not going to say get in the groove and ride because that's weird, but you know what I mean, right? You have to become not even aware of what you're doing so much, right? But you're aware of God. You're in the presence of God. And you see this with the psalmist and, and these others, right? And so I want to give you some helpful questions that commentator uh, Harvey MacArthur provides to kind of search our own hearts and to ask ourselves um, in this matter of prayer, and and here's just a couple of them. The first one is, do I pray frequently or more fervently when I'm alone with God than when I'm in public? Do I pray more frequently or more fervently when I'm alone with God than when I'm in public? Am I looking for just the right phrase? I will be honest with you, that is a temptation for me. You know, when I'm praying, I'm just thinking, oh, what's just the right phrase? But that's that's not what matters, right? It's the pouring out of your heart before God, right? In praise and adoration, thanksgiving, confession of our sin to him. Another one, am I thinking of the worshipers more than God, right? When you pray, are you more aware of the people around you or the God above you? To whom is your direction centered? Another one, am I a spectator to my own performance, right? Are we always thinking, how do I sound? how do I look? You know, is my tone of voice appropriate, right? These different things. And lastly, is it possible that the reason more of my prayers are not answered is because I am more concerned about bringing my prayer to men than to God? Is it possible that the reason more of my prayers are not answered is because I'm more concerned about bringing my prayers to men than to God? Rather pointed question, but it invites us to be honest, right? It invites us to be honest with our own hearts, to be honest before God. And Jesus meant what he said, right? Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. But there's something that we haven't talked about, and it's that last part of the principle. Notice again, he says, For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I think that for many Christians, and yeah, I think for many of us, when we hear Jesus talk about rewards, we're rather surprised by it. You know, For some of you, you may be thinking, what's all this business about rewards? Am I not supposed to be a person who serves God out of duty? Right? God is God, and there's no room for practicing righteousness for rewards. I must serve him and be diligent. But Jesus doesn't seem to think so. In fact, Jesus is not embarrassed to talk about rewards at all. If you notice at the end of each of these illustrations, what does he say? He says, assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. And then at the end of what to do, he says that your charitable deed may be done in secret, verse 4, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. And so Jesus actually gives rewards as an incentive for obedience. As an incentive for obedience and he he begins to draw this contrast, right? He begins to draw the contrast between the rewards that are achieved when you look for the glory of men and the rewards that are achieved when you look for the glory of God. So let's look first here uh, at the glory of men, right? He says in verse 2 and verse 5 at the at the end of those verses, They both end with the same sentence, and the sentence is this, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Jesus is making a very clear point. When he says that in both of those verses, in the original language, that idea of reward is a receipt paid in full. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that if you practice your righteousness in order to receive favor from men, you will receive it, but that's all you get. And it's an interesting point, because Jesus is not saying that there is no reward for practicing your righteousness before men. There is. They will honor you. They'll think you're a good person. Maybe they'll think you're a really good, uh, righteous person by the way that you pray. But Jesus says, okay, you've got it, but go no more. That is all that you will get. I love what Pastor Kent Hughes says. He says, the truth is, the scribes and Pharisees were not giving, but they were buying and they got what they paid for. They were not giving, they were buying, and they got what they paid for. They were not interested in giving to the needs of the poor, but instead they were trying to buy the praise of men. And Jesus says, assuredly I tell you, they got what they wanted. But you know what the problem with the praise of men is? It is so fleeting, and so um, meaningless, it's fool's gold, right? It's shiny, it appears good, it feels good to be praised by men, but then you need more of it. And this is the point that Jesus makes and, and the Apostle Paul makes elsewhere, that us as human beings, we are like glory vacuums. The idea is that we are, our hearts are like black holes that constantly desire the glory from other people, but we just keep sucking it in and we never get enough of what we want. We always need more people to affirm us. We always need more people to tell us how good we are. We always need another pat on the back. We always need another affirmation because our hearts are glory vacuums. We were made for glory, but we always seek it from the wrong source. We seek it from men, as Jesus himself says in verse 2, that they may have glory from men. This is what the scribes and Pharisees desired. And Jesus says, if you want that, You have it. You have your reward. But how different that is from the reward of the Father. How vastly different that is from the reward of the Father. And I think that in this area, Christians often make one of two mistakes. The first mistake is the one that we just seen, right? They practice their righteousness with this improper motive that they might be seen by men, right? They want to be known as the good guy, they want to be known as the, the good Christian boy or girl. They want people to think they're a stand-up citizen. But there's another trap, and I think that there's a lot of Christians who see that, and they say, well, I don't want to do that, and so what they do is they, they start to run to the opposite extreme, but they end up falling into another trap, and that trap is, is that they begin to think of their righteousness merely as a sense of duty. They think of God as a taskmaster, and when anybody, ever somebody mentions rewards, they think that that's crass, or self-indulgent, or or mercenary. Like, oh, I I don't think about rewards. I just do it for the good of God. And Jesus says, oh, no. If you have that attitude, you have also missed the mark. Jesus is reinforcing these illustrations by saying, my Father will reward you. He is not afraid of rewards. C.S. Lewis, as usual, puts it best when he says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Immanuel Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem In that quote there, C.S. Lewis captures these two pitfalls. On the one hand, we look to men to give us glory and praise, and we end up being like children playing in the mud. Far too easily, please. Jesus says, surely they have the reward, and they've missed the boat. They've missed the greatest reward to be had. But he also points out you can make the other mistake of acting like a stoic. A person who thinks that the hope for reward and enjoyment is a bad thing. As if the Christian life is meant to be one of principle and duty. And so this raises the question, right? How then are we to understand these rewards that Jesus is speaking of? Well, ask yourself this. What, if you could think about it, think about God as your father, what is the greatest reward that God your father could give to his children? And I think it's this. I think the greatest reward that God could give to you and he could give to me, it is the all-satisfying joy of knowing and being known by God. The reward is the all-satisfying joy of knowing and being known by God. And you may think, well, that seems odd. (laughs) I was hoping for like Celestial Palace or something like that, right? But it isn't odd. Because think about this. God is the greatest good in this universe. If you were to add up everything that is true, good, and beautiful, the thing that the human heart longs for, the answer would be God. And so, therefore, if God is to give you the greatest reward, he can't give you anything else but himself. If God were to look at all of the universe and say, I want to give my child the greatest reward, the answer would be, ah, I shall give him more of myself. Because he is the greatest being. He is the most satisfying entity in the universe. And this is what God is saying. And this is exactly what Christ has done, right? Is it not the case that Christ has given himself, all of himself, as a sacrifice for his people. He has stood in our place, condemned. And Ephesians tells us that as a result, we have become God's inheritance. Do you know that? That if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are the inheritance of God. Think about that. I am the inheritance. Not, not you get the inheritance of God, you are the inheritance of God. That's what Ephesians says in chapter t- in chapter one, when Paul is praying. He says that they would know the riches of their inheritance, that you are the inheritance of God. And so this means that for us, our supreme joy, our sole satisfaction, the reward, the greatest thing we can receive is to know Christ. It is to know him in a way that extends beyond just knowing facts about him, but to know him in the way that I know my wife, to know him in the way that you know your parents, to know him in a deep relational sense, greater than all of those examples that I've given because he made you, and he made you for him. And you see, what this does is it changes everything about the way that you act in your life. Because it means that when I say, I'm going to give to the needy, I do it because I want the joyful reward of knowing Christ. Why do I pray? Because I want the joyful reward of knowing Christ. I want rewards. But make sure you know what that reward is. It is the joy of knowing Christ. And when you start to understand this, when you start to live this way, you're not going to desire the applause of men, nor are you going to mistakenly serve God as if it were mere duty. Instead, you're going to pursue the reward. You're going to pursue the joyful reward of knowing Christ. And paradoxically, this actually lets you serve more and and practice righteousness more. Why? Why? Well, think about it like this. If I am only doing, if I'm only practicing righteousness in order to receive praise from men, then what happens when people aren't around? I stop. If I'm practicing righteousness because I think out of a sense of duty, then as soon as I feel like I met my duty, I stop. Or, I think God is such a taskmaster that I say, forget it, I'm out of here. And there are way too many Christians who say, I, I'm, I'm done with Christianity because it's too hard. My friends, if you think Christianity is too hard, you don't understand. The grace of God is sufficient for you. God is completely content. He doesn't need anything else. He wants to bless you. But the only way He can bless you is if He gives you Himself. But don't make the mistake of wanting the gifts and not the giver because you've missed it. And don't make the mistake of thinking that you must obey out of mere sense of duty because you've missed it as well. God is your father. He seeks to reward you. And the joyful reward he desires to give you is that you would know him. Paul said, one thing I do. One thing I do. One thing he wanted to do to make it his aim to know God. Why? Because he had laid hold of him. That's why. Paul knew, God, you have laid hold of me. I am yours. And so now I make it my aim to lay hold of you. Did not Jesus himself say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? Why? They will be filled. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those are the rewards. The greatest reward God can give you is to reveal himself to you. And the only way to gain knowledge of God is through obedience. Obedience. You will never know God until you obey him. It's just how it works. You will never know God until you obey him. And so I pray that for all of us, that we would would be zealous for rewards. Say, I'm a person, I want rewards. But don't forget what the reward is. It's the joy of knowing Christ. That is it. That is all you need. And when you get it, you can say with the psalmist, I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. And so, my prayer this evening is that you'd search your heart, be honest. Be honest. You can fool parents, you can fool me, you can fool Alan, practicing righteousness. Doesn't matter. Frankly, I don't care. I'm more concerned about your heart, more concerned about the motivation behind why you're doing what you're doing and for everybody it's going to be look different to the extent to which you give to the extent that you pray to the extent that you practice self denial but all of us must and we need to ask god oh lord show me what you're calling me to do because i want more of you i want the joyful reward that's why paul said right he said first corinthians 15:10 i worked harder than everybody else but not i this is the grace of god in me so i pray that for all of us we would seek that reward because god wants to give it He wants to give it, and I want you all to be able to say with me, I've tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Let's pray.